you know, men don't like to always talk about these things. You right. Know? Let's talk about the, the, the things we can do. But if I, I don't want to talk about my hurts and my pain. But this was a big hurt for me. This defined, you know, in a lot of ways made me who I am today in both good and bad ways. You know, I'm stronger because of it and I'm more compassionate because of it. But it hurt. I had to go through that pain. There's no doubt about it. And why can't we admit that, that it actually hurt? You know? Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Today I have with me Mark Shutter. Mark is a follower of Jesus Christ, a husband, dad, published author, writer, artist, warrior, mountain biker, and a cowboy. He was born and raised and still lives in the Pacific Northwest. He feels most at home exploring the the wild and wide open places. He currently offers support and coaching to others who are struggling with grief. He is the founder of the Job 213 Project. Its mission is to come alongside others who are grieving and sit in silence before helping them to stand again. He enjoys horses, mountain biking, the outdoors, and spending time with his family. His memoir, Cowboys Are Not Supposed to Cry, was published in August. In the book, he tells the story of his grief during the illness and following the death of his young wife in 1993 after five and a half years of marriage. He has appeared on several podcasts and poems pub- and has poems published in various anthologies under the pen name of Mark Wayne. He is currently focused on writing sev- on several writing projects and creating resources about faith, love, healing, grief, and life after painful experiences. He believes in the ripple effect. Touch one life and you may touch the world. For to share the journey, however brief, is a wonderful gift. His wish is to share the joys, the sorrows, the hope, and the healing, to inspire others to live fully despite the grief we all carry, because there is life after. Howdy, Mark. Thanks for hey, being Jenny. with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm so looking forward to hearing more of your story and your perspective on life, grief, and faith. Great. Great. I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing. It's going to be a great conversation. Awesome. Before we get into the conversation, though, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Um, I guess, uh, you know, I'm on all the social media channels. Um, I have a website, markshutter.com, and that links to all my social media channels. I'm most active on Instagram. That's probably the best place to, to actually connect with me. But I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and and and, and Twitter. So, Okay, perfect. Um. So I'd like to start with mm-hmm. you telling us more about your book, Cowboys Are Not Supposed to Cry. Okay. Um, yeah, that was, um, as, as you mentioned in the intro, um, my first wife died in 1993. Um, so 30 years ago, if you will. So I'm 30 years removed from that experience. And I did not write the book until a couple years ago, or started writing the book a couple years ago. Um, and it was a long journey to get there, if you will. Um, and we can get more into that in, in detail, if you'd like. But I spent, you know, the first 20 years after her death, basically just ignoring her death in a lot of ways, um, not dealing with it, acknowledging it in my own head, but not talking about it, not sharing it with anybody. Um, and then on the advice of my current wife, she said, you should write a book about your, because she knew, I mean, she, when we got together, she knew my experience and she said, you should write a book about that. And I'm like, nah, I don't know about that. Um, but she kind of kept pushing me towards that. She goes, it would help somebody. Um, and she also encouraged me to seek some counseling. So mm-hmm. through that endeavor with my counselor, he also encouraged me to write a book. He goes, you should maybe put some of this down on paper. He goes, this is quite a story. Um, and through a series of events, a couple other people who I'm not actually connected with, but kind of like um, serendipity, if you will, that I ran across these people and kind of started talking about their book. And 
um, shared my experience real briefly, like we should write a book. And it's like, okay, all this is coming together. So I sat down and kind of took it seriously, um, spent a, a, a few weekends by myself up in the mountains um, with all my journals from way back in the 1990s, from before she died, leading up to after she died, combing through those journals, um, very emotional, if you will, you know, rereading some of the stuff that I had put away and then transposing that into the book of Cowboys Are Not Supposed to Cry, um, then solicited it out there for, you know, a publisher, Christian Faith Publishing, accepted it to, to publish, and lo and behold, you know, it, it's out there now. <laughs> and so um, I'm not sure what else to, to tell you. Um, so what was it like going through those old journal entries and essentially reliving yeah. Yeah. everything that happened that's, that's a very good question because there were times where going through the journals was um like i, I mentioned very emotional because it took me right back to those moments mm -hmm. and there was a lot of i had to i tried to i, I and, and and i had have an author note at the very beginning of the book that you know this 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 the events of this book took place most of the events took place almost 30 years ago so yeah. you know memories change memories fade so but i've tried to be as true to what i experienced as possible um and 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 i believe it is i i did leave out some a lot of the profanity because my my journals are filled with profanity and i realized wow you were very angry which is understandable uh -huh. uh, very very angry I, so it was it was very emotional a lot of times taking me right back while i was transposing you know and kind of fleshing out the the story if you will because the journals were a lot of this like one line sentences one word you know those sorts of things of i hate this i hate this fff you know i hate this where why are why are you gone i had to flesh out what was kind of going on in those moments uh -huh. um so going back into that like i said very emotional at times I was writing at times with tears running down my face, dropping onto the page. Yeah. And then there were other times on the other extreme where it was very clinical. I was reading these, these notes in my handwriting going, wow, this guy really went through something horrific that really affected him. And I'm talking about myself, but uh -huh. I was like separated from myself. It was like, I was like, I was like, I was seeing this other, this other person who had experienced this. So it's a very, very interesting dynamic at times. And it just depended on the day, depending on kind of, I think, what was going on in my life currently and that sort of thing. So what was most surprising as you were writing your memoir? Wow. Um. There were a lot of surprising things, but what was most surprising, I think, was in 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 a, in, a, in a weird way that I was still here, if you will. You know, um, that, and and, and I kind of I, I transpose that. You know, you go back to, and and I've talked about this a little bit before. You know, 1993. You know, it's before social media. It was before podcasts. It was before anything like this. I mean, and it was just her and I, you know, we didn't have kids. We'd only been married five years. Um, there was a, a real good probability that she couldn't have kids. And we knew that going into the marriage. Um, so I came home to an empty house every night. There were, I had no focus of well, who do I take care of now sort of thing. So I look at that and I was like, the surprising thing was I didn't deal with it very well. That was a surprise to me. I think looking back now, it's like I did not deal with it well at all because I just shoved it. And that's you know, goes to the, the 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 title of my book of Cowboys Are Not Supposed to Cry. Yeah, that's what I believe. That's what you know. You shove it down. You get back on the horse and you ride away. It's like then that's what I did in a lot of ways. I, I moved on. I didn't move forward. And we can talk about that. You know, I definitely moved on on the outside. And I think that was surprising to me. It's like diving back into these. And it brought up a lot of things that I had to work through with my counselor because it brought up a lot of things that I had never dealt with. You know, some guilt that I carried, some um, regret that I carried, all of those emotions that I just stuffed and rode off from in, in a lot of ways. So that was, I think, the biggest surprise to me. It's like, wow, I thought I, I, thought I was 
it's fine. You know, I thought I was good. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so much to unpack there. So I'm just trying to figure out where yeah. to start. What kept you going in those early days? Um, after she died? Or yeah. Writing after, the book? She... after she well, died? Well, both. Well, both? Um, yeah. And I, 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 I'm choosing my words very carefully because, you know, there's there's things, like I said, I did not deal with, with her death well. Um, but there were also, and, you know, I try to have a lot of grace because there were a lot of other people, you know, her family, loved ones, friends who who were hurting also. But as we all know, there were some things said that really sent me spinning a little bit and they were well intended. But I took a lot of those those comments to heart of, you know, you'll be okay. You're young, you'll find somebody else, you know, because I was I was 28 when she died. She was she was just about to turn 27. Um, you know, if it had happened, if it had to happen to somebody in our family, I'm, I know Mark's the one that could deal with it. I had to live up to those expectations. You know, I had to, I, and that's what I felt like. I need to live up to these expectations and these of what everybody thinks. So let's do it. You know, let's be the responsible one. Um, let's, 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 let's do it. And so that was kind of a mantra. Is that a good thing? Not necessarily. I mean, we did we did have a dog and we had two cats. So I had to come home and feed the dog and the cats, which honestly were somewhat of a lifeline um, because it gave me at least a focus of something to care. Because there was the, there was that, you know, for the six months before she died, there was, I don't want to say 24-7 care, but, you know, as, as the cancer progressed, she got weaker and weaker and there was a lot of caregiving. You know, I was still trying to work and take time off and caregiving. She was trying to go to school. Um, there was just so that and then when like if people who've been through this know once the caregiving is over what do you do with all your time yeah you know and coming home to the empty house it was like <gasps> and so I, I i just shifted my focus to a lot of other things of just taking care of and just moving forward and i don't know you know like i said it's been almost 30 years so i i try to remember back and in a lot of ways i shut down if you will uh -huh. it was just like boom let's just go through the days um and then even moving forward to writing the book, I mean, my wife and my daughter were, were huge catalysts in that. Um, they both know the story. They both thoroughly, every day, encouraged me to keep writing the book. When I got cold feet, you know, six months out from publishing, going through the, the, the editing process, I was like, I don't want to throw up my, my hands. I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to put this out there. I don't want people to read this. Um, it's not going to have an effect on anybody. Nobody's going to care. They were so encouraging. And, and that kept me going that, you know, your story may be different, but there's an aspect of the pain that we're all, you know, and one of, one of my favorite quotes um, from a, a book called Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson is, um, loving somebody is not inevitable. Loving somebody who will die is. We're all going to love somebody who's going to die. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's just the, that's the, just the, the, the truth of life and death, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But but I also believe there's a hope after. And so it's like as I kept going, I had to keep going to that that well of my faith in a lot of ways and my family to encourage me to keep going. You know, there's something in this book for somebody, you know, and back to, again, the intro. Um, and I've done a little video on Instagram about this. You know, I used to want to touch the whole world. You know, we have these grandiose dreams of touching the world. But you touch one person and change their life and then they touch one person and change their life and you get those ripples. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's like my, 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 my grandiose dreams as a, as a young man are, are a little different now. It's like, I, if I can, if I can make one life breathe easier is, um, uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said that, um, or was it Emerson? I can't remember, but it's like make one life breathe easier than you succeeded. And that's kind of where I operate from. And that's kind of, that uh -huh. got me through the book and it keeps me going to this day. Like, that's why I feel like I'm still here. One of the reasons I went through that experience, you know, sometimes there are no reasons, you know, life happens, but you just, you get up and you, you keep going, you know, yeah. and, and you believe in something better down the line, if you will. Mm -hmm. So.
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You also mentioned um, moving on versus moving forward. What's the mm -hmm. difference in your mind? In my mind, and I tend to be a little bit cynical in a lot of ways, and we can get into that around the the, the um, grief and death community because, like I said, I moved on, and I shortly after she died, packed up a lot of her stuff, put it in boxes, gave it to Goodwill, gave some stuff away. Some of that I regret a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, and I moved um, on, you know. I didn't keep the room the same. Um, I didn't sleep in the bed we, we slept in. I slept out on the couch for many, many months. Um, and I tried to change things because I tried to move on. Yeah. Um, but I also didn't keep things the same, you know. Um, and then moving forward is more of an intentional choice to get better, if you will, and to deal okay. with your grief. And it took me a long time to really, I thought I just had to carry the grief, move on and carry the grief with me. And I still carry the grief with me, but I'm looking for new opportunities. And it, it, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's like on the outside, I've been very successful throughout my life, you know, promotions, careers, you know, job wise, all, all that sort of stuff. A, a wonderful wife and, and daughter now and, you know, beautiful home. Um, but on the inside, you're still stuck back there and holding yourself back from what's right in front of you right now. The blessings that God's giving you right now. It's like, yeah. and that was a lot of my, I did, I moved on on the outside, but I didn't move forward allowing God and others to bless me. It was, I was always kind of keeping myself at arm's length from, from, from a lot of things. You know, uh -huh. Enjoying life, but not really living fully, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. kind of my, I think that kind of sums it up. It's like moving on is moving, life goes on, but moving forward is actually living life fully again. Got it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So how do we reconcile like or or find balance in moving on and also moving forward? Sometimes that's a daily, I think a daily thing. Um I and I don't know if we ever fully reconcile it. Um at least at least for me. It's like I mean, I will always carry, you know, somebody who I, you know, promised to love and cherish till death do us part, you know, expected to grow old together with, mm -hmm. you know, watching her, you know, get diagnosed with cancer twice, actually, in the five years we were married, um, you know, going through surgeries, going through chemotherapy, and then watching her get weaker and weaker, and then actually die, being by her bedside when she died, and then turning and walking away from her, you know, and then having to go through all the after death experiences you know it's like i had no idea what i was doing i was just like you know funerals and you know memorial services and it's like ah. um so i carry all that with me as my experience knowing that that doesn't define me if you will so maybe that's how you kind of reconcile it's like that's part of who i am but it's not all of who i am yeah you know and i think you know and it took me a lot of years. I mean, I felt guilty for remarrying in, in some ways that I hid from everybody. I felt guilty for having a child, you know, because we couldn't have children, but now I have a child with another woman. It's like um, all those promises that you made, even though I fulfilled those promises, and I know that there's still a little bit of that that guilt that's like, oh, you know, should I be happy? Is it okay to be happy? I had to, I had to deal with all that. I think, I think reconciling sometimes is just dealing with those daily questions that come up. Um, and and some of them, in my mind, you know, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis in his book, Grief Observed, are nonsense questions. We ask, ask nonsense questions, and then in the end, they're not really going to matter. You know, when I get when I get my belief, when I get to heaven and I'm face to face with with God, they're not going to matter. You know, it's like it's all it's all okay. I don't understand it. I don't need to understand it. It's all good now, sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. but it's taken years to get for me to get there. People who can just flip that switch. Um, I admire in some ways and I wonder how do you do that? You know? Yeah. So
so how can we maintain our faith in God? Our faith and our uh, the connection with God when we feel that he's silent? Um, for, for me, in a lot of ways, it, it, it's had to be an intentional um, choice, if you will, an intentional spending time with him or allowing him to speak to me. And for me, that means quieting myself, um, you know, um, whether it's reading the Bible, but even beyond that, it's sometimes just sitting and, and allowing the silence. Um, I've went through, it's interesting you asked that question because I actually had somebody on Instagram the other day um, DM me because I made a post about faith and they, they were curious that how did you maintain your faith, you know, going through the grieving process? Because I've struggled with that at times. I have too, you know, and so we had a little correspondence back and forth. Like I have too. I mean, I went, I, I firmly believe, you know, she's in a better place. She's not suffering. Her faith was really strong. She grew up as a, a, a missionary's kid. So um, well-versed in, in scripture and the Bible. Um, she faced things head on. I, I know she had her own fears and stuff, but um, so that gave me strength. And then when she died, I went through a phase of, like I said, the anger at God, really angry at God and came to a point of what I, I, I type of kind of like um, using God as a means to an end. If, if the only way I could see her again someday was to believe in you, if I can go to heaven and see her, I'll believe in you. And I finally realized, okay, then you're kind of playing both ends against the middle, if you will. It's like, you know, hedging your bets. And and God's patient. He, he knew what I was doing. I firmly believe that. Um, I went through a period about 10 years ago when a lot of this stuff kind of started coming back. And I stuck, got, you know, five years ago when I got into counseling where um, I felt like I had not lost my faith, but misplaced it. Like, okay, I still believe in God. I still believe in heaven. I still believe in Jesus. I still believe in the resurrection. I still believe that there's a life after, but I don't feel any of it. I'm just going through my days, you know, this physical world. There's, there's no spiritual. It's like, I'm just misplaced it. I can't find it anywhere. You know, yeah. I still believe that I can't find it anywhere. So I use that term. like I misplaced my faith. And it's like, so I was looking for it in a lot of ways. Um, and then in the last few years, it's more of getting serious about walking with him. If that makes sense of, of, of listening for his voice and that there is a life after um there's a life after here in the physical plane and then there's an afterlife you know from i believe that you know we will live on after this and the question is where are you going to go after this um but it is somewhat of an intentional turning away from the past and turning towards the future which was really hard for me because that felt like i was abandoning her right um in a lot of ways it's like but I didn't have any other choice, you know? And that was the thing I, 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 I kind of wrote about in my book and I talked to my counselor about. It's like, you know, watching her die was hard, but it was very peaceful at the same time. I mean, it was a very peaceful death, if you will. And then standing there by her bedside after she died, I didn't know what to do. And I realized, you know, within minutes, it's like, I have the only choice I have is to turn away from her lifeless body laying in that hospital bed and walk away. And that was harder than watching her actually die. Yeah. I mean, physically, it took so much strength in my body to step back from the bed, to put her hand down, step back from the bed and turn away and walk away. But that's what you have to do. You know, I mean, you don't have any, I couldn't stand there by her bedside for the next however many days or months or years. Like, You've got to figure out how do you move forward. And, and a lot of times, you know, hope you have people that come alongside you and help you with that, which I did. Um, but I realized that was just the beginning because I did that. But then I didn't actually go back to I didn't really move forward after that. I moved on from her bedside, but I didn't really move forward. So every day it's, a, it's like every day is a new day. Every day is a new opportunity to start again, if you will. And I firmly believe that. I mean, we all have bad days. I still have bad days. It's like, you know, there's yeah. there's there's still life that, that, that cascades in on us. But it's just one day at a time, sometimes one minute at a time sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So going back to your um, your wife's journey and like before she died, when she was sick, how do we love 
what we know is leaving. Even if we like, how yeah. did you how did you tra uh, navigate that that period of time when mm -hmm. you knew death was coming, coming. but you didn't like? Yeah, and I, I and, and that's the interesting thing, and I'll kind of um, preface this my answer by by saying. I am, death fascinates me in a lot of ways, but it's only been in the, like, the last five years, writing the book and kind of delving, delving back into my own experience. Uh -huh. Death fascinates me and, and our beliefs around death and our beliefs around suffering and even grief after, after that. Um, and knowing there's a lot of other types of grief out there. And I went through my own in the last few years of you know, losing jobs and moving on and losing community and connection and all that stuff, um, yeah. friendship. But... <sighs> because of that fascination but i look back to that time when she was sick and going through treatments i didn't even consider her dying a possibility that was not even something i was willing to even consider you know and and, and i couched it i think as being strong for her it's like okay you know i mean i mean strong for you but i look back now and it's like we had very few conversations around her the possibility of her dying it was always like, oh, you're not going to die. We're going to, we're going to beat this. We're going to, we're going to do what we need to do. We're going to beat this. We're going to, you know, we're meant to be together. You had all those hopeful, hopeful things. So loving her was easy because I ignored the fact that she was dying. I think if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do remember her, her, I believe it was her mother. And again, like I said, <laughs> memories, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was her mother who, who lived out of state, flew in the week before she died. And, um, she was getting sicker and she pulled me aside and goes mark i don't think you realize how sick she is because she hadn't seen her in, in a couple months okay and i said she's, she's doing good you know i'm like she's doing okay you know we're doing it's like no she is really really sick and that was kind of i think the first moment where i like realized oh my gosh i think it kind of sunk in on me that it's like there's this may not be a good end may not be a happy ending you know because before that i was ignoring it i was just like you know We'll do what the doctors say. We'll do what we need to do. We'll just live our lives. We'll keep going and we won't, I won't deal with it. And I have some regret over that because I don't know what she was thinking. I don't know in a lot of ways what she was going through. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I, I've tried, I've, I've sat and again, sat alone with God and asked God, help me recall some of those conversations. And a lot of it's just blank. And maybe that's because he doesn't, it's like, you don't need to know at this point, it doesn't matter sort of thing. But I can't remember a lot of it. If, if there were conversations, if there were, you know, and like I said, I couldn't have written this book. The people who, who write a, a memoir or a book, you know, a year after somebody dies or a couple of years, I don't know how they do it. I mean, my yeah. book would have just been filled with profanities and I hate the world. I hate everybody. Yeah. Like I had to, I had to get removed from the actual experience. So I hope that answers the question. I kind of rambled a little bit. There. No, that that's good. Yeah, it does. Um, so how long did it take to come to terms that she was actually dying? I, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't know. But I, I, I think it was that, that, that week before she died when um, the comment was made that she is really sick. Um, I think everybody else was trying to be around me at that time. In, in, our, in our physical location was trying to be strong for us also and support us. So they weren't really commenting. I don't know. Um, and I don't know that I ever really did until I walked away, you know, um, walked out of the hospital that afternoon, that Friday afternoon, and basically shut down through the funeral the following Tuesday because there's all these things you have to do. And it's like, yeah. I just kind of shut down and did what you had to do. Um, I, and again, I, I don't think there was ever a specific moment. I think it was a process. Okay. Again, it was coming back to that empty house, opening the door. And even though the, the, the dog was there and the dog would come running, you know, and the, the two cats would meow, they needed bed. Like there was an emptiness in the house. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a presence that was no longer there. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's different than, you know, when we're together, when, when people are alive and somebody goes away for a weekend trip, we miss them. But their presence is still with us, if you will. Uh -huh. But in my experience, when I went back to the house after she died, that presence was no, I knew she, it's like, I knew she was never coming back. That presence was never going to be in that house anymore. Yeah. And everything felt, felt very stale and very, um, 
dark in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. if you will. So from what I from what I recall. So yeah, it, I don't think there was a specific moment. It was just that every day was a little bit more of a nail in the coffin, for lack of a better analogy, that, oh, she's really not coming back, you know? I, and that's the other thing. It's like, you know, I've, I've had no visitations from her. I've had like three dreams in 30 years of her. So it's like, I just, I, I take that, me personally, I take that as a sign that she's okay. Okay. You know, she doesn't need to come back and tell me she's okay because she's okay. And I know that kind of sounds contradictory possibly, but she doesn't need to. And I, I, I don't need that assurance. I don't know. It's like, so. For some people, for some of my clients, um, they really rely on that. Yeah. Reassurance that, mm -hmm. that comfort that, oh, I'm still here with you. I'm still. Yeah. Spiritually present with you. Right. I'm still a part of your life. Right. And so it's interesting to hear that you don't necessarily need that yeah. confirmation. And, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I've, I've done a couple, and I'm going to, I guess a shameless plug here. I've done a couple podcasts on, with, with, with hosts on how the occult or the paranormal uses grief to deceive people. Um, I don't believe in mediums um, because I don't know. I, my question is, who you, who, how do you know you're actually talking to them? Mm. And my other, my other comment is, if my dead wife who if my dead wife wanted to get a message to me why would she need to go through a complete stranger to deliver a message to me why would she not just come down and tell me herself mm -hmm. if you believe in the spirit world and we're all spirits after we die you know and we go to heaven why does she need why do i need to go to a complete stranger to have have that complete stranger ask her a question so that so she can tell that complete stranger to tell me what the answer is. I, to me, that makes no sense. And the, and there's scripture about um, going to mediums and going to sorcerers and things like that. So my faith tells me, don't do that. Can you do that? Absolutely. I don't believe God would say, don't do it if you couldn't do it. You know, so, but then again, go back to that first question of, even if a medium came and said, I have this message from your first wife, she told me to tell you this. I'm like, how do you know it was her? Yeah. Prove to me that it was actually her talking to you. Yeah. You can't. There's no way you can't. And and I know, I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of research into this, too, about, you know, um, people that have been debunked and that sort of thing. And so th there's, a, there's a whole, that's a whole other show, if you will, going down that rabbit trail. But my faith tells me that she's okay. Mm -hmm. she's, 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 she's where she should be. Um, is that necessarily where, where I wanted her to be in the beginning? Absolutely not. I wanted her here with me. You know? Right, but I've come to terms with that over the years that I will see her again, um, and she's where she's supposed to be right now, and I'm where I'm supposed to be. Does that make it every day perfect and better? No, because I still I still miss her. You yeah. know, I'll be honest. There, I ha I've had a couple triggers over the last couple weeks that are just. I mean, it's like it's amazing how little things can remind you of someone who you lost years ago, and all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, and your heart just kind of beats a little bit faster. And you feel that in the pit of your stomach and you're like, because oh, you carry that with you, you know, yeah. the love doesn't die, if, if you will. Right, right. So, and that's okay. You know, that's okay. That's part of this life experience, I guess, that we all deal with in some ways. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I, I, I kind of, you know, end it with this. It's like, I've, I've, I've come to terms with it in the aspect of, at the beginning, I talked about, you know, moving forward and, and just riding off from it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't share it with people. I become much more willing to share like, Hey, this is my story. You know, this is my experience. I guess be a little more vulnerable and a little more transparent, yeah. like, you know, and without going too far down, it's like, you know, men don't like to always talk about these things. You right. know? Let's talk about the, 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 the things we can do, but if I, I don't want to talk about my hurts and my pains, but this was a big hurt for me. This defined, you know, in a lot of ways made me who I am today in both good and bad ways. You know, I'm stronger because of it and I'm more compassionate because of it, but it hurt. I had to go through that pain. There's no doubt about it. And why can't we admit that, that it actually hurt, you know? Yeah. So. yeah. Um, so do you think that personal and societal expectations of men are changing when it comes to grief and grieving? 
I actually do think they are a little bit. Um, and that's something I've been, I've been watching too. Um, I, I, I haven't seen it, but I want it to so bad. There was a show, cause we don't have Netflix. There was a show on Netflix, I think with Ricky Gervais about his wife dying or something. It was a series. People have told me you need to watch that show. It's, cause it's really well done portrayed of a man going through grief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there's the whole, there's the Robin Williams scene in Goodwill Hunting where he's talking about his wife dying or his, his wife that had died. So I think in some ways it is, but there's also, you know, kind of going back a little bit. I, I, I watch, you know, some movies, some things, and this is not, not a blanket statement, but it somewhat is, is it's like men are portrayed in a couple different ways. They're either like myself, they just write off from it and don't deal with it. It's like become stoic, become kind of shells of their former selves, and then possibly get addicted to drinking or something else, you know, find some of their stuff. Or they go on some kind of murderous rampage because the vengeance and the revenge, and then there's no accountability for that, 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 that vigilante justice, if you will. And sometimes there is no justice. I mean, um, you know, one of my favorite Bible verses, I, pretty sure it's James 2.12, it talks about justice and mercy. And sometimes there is no justice. There's just mercy. And sometimes God gives us mercy when we actually deserve justice. And sometimes we want the evil people to have justice. And we're like, well, we have to leave that in the hands of God, you know, um, because he says he'll take care of it. So back to the society, I do think it's changing because I've seen, I mean, I'm involved um, in a couple of men's um, grief groups online, that sort of thing that were not available years ago. See, that was the other thing. Go back to 1993. Yeah. There was no Facebook. There was no, I mean, I picked up the phone and called people and said, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, you could die earlier tonight. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. But, and you had to have those conversations. Now I see somebody post and you, you, so-and-so has been sick for months. And I, they post on Facebook. I just want to let all my friends and family know that so-and-so, you know, or my my family member passed away. Then you get, you know, 138 comments and all right. this stuff, which is fantastic. But you couldn't do that in 1993. Yeah. You had to actually pick up the phone and call people and tell them. And so it's a little different where I see that. And I think that's a good thing. But I also think, wow, where's the, where's the human connection sometimes? Because I feel like we've lost that a little bit. Uh-huh. And even myself, you know, it's easy to type out a little a little message. to say, hey, I'm so sorry for your, your loss. There's another platitude, you know, but, you know, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you, whatever you want to say. And then you move, you move on with your life. Yeah. Sort of thing. It's like because they're miles away. You don't have to even have a conversation with them. Um, but I do think it's changing in a lot of ways. There's a lot of good men out there. Um, I, I think you and I are connected with a few of them who are doing very good things in this space. And I think it's changing in a lot of good ways that, you know, men have feelings too and men yeah. hurt. Um, you know, the, the, the expectation that the man's always strong. We try to be, but we're not always strong. Sometimes we need help to, to stand, whether that's from another man or whether that's from, you know, our spouses or our significant others. It's like, we go through trials and tribulations just like anybody else. I mean, I read through the Psalms and I read about David, King David, crying out to God. I mean, a man, a man after God's own heart, you know, warrior, King David in, in the Bible. But he also struggled, you know. Yeah. He did some bad things, but, and he, but he struggled and he called out to God and he wept and he cried and he danced. And it's like, and, and there's a lot of men that, that, that I think are fearful to do that, myself included. I've been very fearful to do that in a lot of ways for a lot of years. Yeah. You know, so, but I do think it's, I think it's the tide is slowly turning in a lot of ways. So how can we encourage men to let themselves cry, to dance, to express mm-hmm. themselves, to be vulnerable, to touch that I, I, softer side? Well, and, and that's kind of the one thing that drives me is I have to be, for me to, to share with you, I have to be in the right place. Uh-huh. Um, to really go there. Yeah. And so I think there's an element of, and my counselor used to do that. He used to just sit. He used to ask me a question and just sit. You know, because you have to be, you have to be comfortable with the silence in a lot of ways. And as men, a lot of times we want to fix things. We want to, well, let me, do, tell me, tell me what's going on. I'll give you the, the answer of how to fix it, what you need to do. And that goes back to my Job 2.13 project. And Job 2.13, and I'm paraphrasing, is, you know, after God had let Satan take everything away from Job twice, 
um, his three friends are coming to see him, to console him, and they see him from a long ways off. Um, and they come and they sit down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one saying a word because they see that his pain was very great. That's Job 2.13. They sit down on the ground with him. They get down to his level. They don't stand above him. They don't, you know, tell him to get up to where they're at. They sit down on the ground and nobody says a word for seven days and seven nights. I read that and I was like, we can't even go 30 seconds without <laughs> offering some kind of like seven days and seven nights. That's an eternity in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I've done things at, in, in, in my professional life at work where it's like um, in, in trainings where it's like, let's just, let's just be silent for 30 seconds. 30 seconds is a long time to just have everybody just looking at each other because they saw that his pain was very great, you know? And then, the, and then my, my, my next application of that is Proverbs 27, 17, where it says iron sharpens iron. And, um, and that's where, you know, once, once we've, we've sat in silence and held space for you and your pain, and when it's time for you to get up again, I'll be there to help you stand again. When it's time for you, not time when I think you should stand. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing I think that men need is that, that um, permission, I guess. Of, to do it on their own timeline, um, because you can't force that. It's like you can, you can, you can cajole, you can push, you can encourage, but I see a lot of that. Of you need to do this. You need to just get up right now, tie your shoe. And I agree with that to a point. Yes, yes, absolutely. There comes a point where you can't just lay on the couch under a blanket and, and hide from the world. Mm -hmm. But you also have to get to the point where that person trusts you enough to actually take that advice. So what comes before that? So I think, I think, yeah, um, the vulnerability and it's building relationships in a lot of ways. Um, and that's difficult in this social media age. I mean, you and I have been connected for a while now through social media and, and, uh, you know, other, other thing. I think we've been, actually been on a couple of grief panels with, with Tony, um, if I remember correctly. And it's yeah. like, but we've never met in person, right. you know, it's like, so we're connected, but are we really connected? And in this digital age, it's so easy to hide ourselves behind a computer screen and a keyboard. But it's like, are we actually making those connections sort mm -hmm. of thing? Um, and I think that and it, it's difficult. I mean, it's hard for me to let those barriers down for myself personally. Yeah, It still is, you know, because I still have self-preservation mode and self-protective modes and that sort of thing. And um, I don't want to be seen as, as weak or all that. So I struggle with sharing. But it's also hard for me to broach that with other men still to this day. You know, it's like, cause, oh, I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want them to get angry at me because I asked them a question I shouldn't have asked. Or, sure. you know, I mean, it's one of the things it's like, <clears throat> and I actually just heard this the other day. It's like, we asked the question of how are you? Well, the immediate response is fine or okay. Yeah. I'm good. You know, instead of asking, how are you? Ask what's on your mind? Because that's a more in-depth question. What's really like on your that. mind? Yeah. And then go from there because you can't you can't answer that with what's on your mind. Good. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, uh -huh. what, what are you thinking? So I was like, oh, that's brilliant. So I've started actually started using that in my work life of you know when I encounter people. I was like, so what's on your mind today? So you know what's going on in their world, and then you can and you listen and it's like, well, what else sort of thing? Uh -huh. And that might open a door. It may it may not, but it's it's a way to encourage people to maybe open up a little bit. And men are taught, you know, from an early age, you know, oh, get up, boys don't cry, you know, and I yeah. hate to say that, but that was the, the expectations, like rub some dirt on it, you'll be fine, get back up on the horse, you know, oh, it's just a skin knee, you'll be fine, stop your crying. It's like, and it's all well meaning, you know, training boys up to be men, if you will, and, you know, but at the same time, a lot of times those comments are internalized, you know. And, and we carry them into adulthood and of, of what it means to be a man. And I back to the, the previous question. I think some of that is starting to change. You know, I think there's a, a lot of good stuff out there um, that is starting to just the, the myth of, you know, the, the heroic man always being strong is starting to crumble a little bit, maybe around the edges. At least I hope so. So, yeah, you can be strong and, and you can be loving at the same time. And you should be, you know. So. I see strength as not there. There are multiple meanings of strength. Yeah. One is I can do hard things. Like I can, I can move on mm -hmm. when hard things come my way. Right. That's that's a strength. 
Absolutely. I can get up the next day. I can do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I see. I, I also think there's incredible strength in acknowledging I'm hurting so much. Very true. It, it's interesting to that because, yeah, I totally agree with that. Because one of the things um, that, that, that that I see is, you know, for, for, from a male perspective is like, um, because, oh, you know, I mean, do the competitive sports aspect from that perspective of men are very competitive in, in sports and, and that sort of thing. You know, you're playing football or baseball or whatever, and you, 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 you twist your ankle, you pull a, a, a muscle. It's like, you're like, oh, that hurt. And then you go through physical therapy and the physical therapy was horrible, but I worked my butt off and I was strong and I'm back to full strength. You admit all that pain and struggle. But if your heart gets hurt and your heart gets broke, I don't want to admit that because that is seen as a weakness. Well, what's the difference between breaking a leg and breaking your heart? They're both, I mean, one's a little more metaphorical, if you will, but yeah. there's studies about broken heart syndrome and that it causes physical effects, right? So yeah. I broke my leg and I struggled and recovered from that. Well, there's a strength in that. Absolutely. Going to physical therapy, getting yourself back to where you were. Well, what about when my heart got broke? What's, what's wrong with the feelings of I got my heart broke? And I need to do what I, the work I need to put in to get back to. So I, I agree with what you're saying. There's two different types of strength there. Um, and we don't always allow men to have this strength about a broken heart. And, and partly that's on the man because we don't want to admit that our heart, oh, it was fine. It's like, she didn't matter that much to me anyway. I just moved on, you know. And then you think about, you know, breakups and things like that. It's like, you know, she doesn't want me. I don't want her. Yeah. And some yeah. of that's a self-preservation sort of, you know, <laughs> But at the same time, we struggle to admit that, that it hurt. And sometimes I think that's because that's what, especially for men of my generation, if you will, that's what was modeled for us because that was what was modeled for them. Uh-huh. You know, and you go back to the generations, it's like, that's what it was, you know? I mean, I think of my grandfathers and, you know, coming from, you know, out of the depression, we're living through the Great Depression and World War One, World War Two, and that was what was modeled for you, yeah. you know? And it's just handed down. It's, it's a generational thing. But I think it is changing in some ways. Um, so. so how can we teach um, how can we teach the younger generations to be more accepting of all the different types of strengths? As well as working with yeah. the older generations of right. how do we break down those generational barriers? I wish I had a good answer for you. I, I really don't know. For me personally, um, it is, it's somewhat of a paradigm shift. At least for me, in my own life, it's been a paradigm shift. Of, and I think it's encouraging boys slash men I mean, you can say, yeah, hey, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel. But you've really got to allow them to give themselves permission, if mm-hmm. you will. You know? And and again, like I said, in those moments where they're hurting, sometimes a knee-jerk reaction, because that's our go-to is, you know, oh, it didn't hurt that bad. Because we don't want to hear the screaming. We don't want to hear the crying, whatever. So I think it's a paradigm shift on a lot of different levels, if yeah. you will. Um, I mean, it would be it would be interesting to me. I mean, I, I don't know. This this thought just occurred to me. I I, I know there's been, um, you know, leaders in 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 our country, you know, who who have suffered um, devastating losses while in um, position. But it, and it would be interesting to go back and research. Did they share any vulnerability or hurt during that time, or did they just become stoic because the the country needs a strong leader? Um, in fact, there's a such occurred to me, and I was actually talking to a good friend of mine the other day about this. There's there's a, a and we didn't come to a conclusion in in the book of I want to say Second Samuel. There, where David loses one of his sons and he's weeping and grieving 
Nathan, I'm pretty sure it's Nathan the prophet, and I apologize if I've got this wrong, comes to him and says, knock it off. You've got people out there who you need to lead, and you need to go and be the king for these people. So he got chastised for grieving, and then David had to go and wave to the people from the balcony to see the king. And we talked about that going, do you think David wanted to do that? And he was grieving the loss of one of his sons. But somebody else told him, no, you need to be strong. You need to go out there because you got a job to do. You know, and there is that element. Um, you know, we have jobs to do. Like I said earlier, you can't just stay at home and, and lay on the couch under a blanket. You got we, men, women, we all have jobs to do. We got to get up and re-engage in life. But there is an element of, for the moment, you know, allow somebody to grieve. And then back to Job 2.13, can we just sit with them in silence? Until it's time, not knowing when that time will be. I mean, it could be seven days. It could be 24 hours. It could be three months. You know, people go through this differently. Sort of yeah. thing. Everybody, you know, I, I know in, probably in your experience, everybody deals with grief a little differently. So, um, I was talking with one of my, so I lead a support group, mm -hmm. a couple of them. And one of my group members was saying that, so I asked him, I asked the group, what, um, like I was explaining that along the lines that everybody grieves on their own timeline. Right. And um, when you're ready, you have that internal knowing of, okay, it's time to get up and do something or it's time yeah. to make a change. Yeah. Um, so one of my group members says, I don't agree with that. Hmm. I wasn't ready, but I needed to. I was I was I was put in a situation where I was like forced to, mm -hmm. but I wasn't ready. You know, is there a question there, Jenny? What or, do you think about that? I, I, I what just popped into mind. I think that's interesting because I I, 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 I agreed with your first part, and then when you said, you know, the, this person said they weren't ready, but they needed to. I agree with that also because what popped into my mind is. And I've, I've shared this on, you know, with people. It's like, I acknowledge that my wife died, that she got sick, she suffered and she died. I acknowledge that that happened, but I don't accept it. It's like, wh why do I need to accept it? Uh, I mean, it hurt me. It yeah. was, it was horrible. I didn't like going through the experience. I didn't like the fact of seeing her suffer. I didn't like the fact that she had to die. I don't want to accept that. I acknowledge it, but. But I, again, back to your comment, I needed to move on, though, or move forward somehow. Yeah. And there were times, you know, I moved on in the beginning, and then there's become times where it's like, I need to move forward. I need to deal with this issue. I may not be ready, but I need to, because, and that's acknowledging what happened. And it doesn't mean accepting it. You know, I'll never be okay with it. You know, um, I don't believe I'll ever be okay with it. I, and, and I think that's okay. You know, yeah. it's okay. I mean, I am. I am so blessed right to this day and my life is wonderful. And that's where I you know, come from a lot with, with, with my own support is there is a life after. And it's, it's not easy to get there. You know, I'm, I'm a, a testament to that. You know, that's what I share my story. It's taken me 25. I mean, even though my wife and I have been married for, you know, a little over 20 years now, like those first 10 years were not as good. I mean, they were good. Don't get me wrong. But it's like I was holding myself back in a lot of ways. Because, you know, my first wife died. I don't want to get too close and have somebody die again. Plus, I don't yeah, want to be unfaithful yeah. to her and all this stuff. And it's only been in the last, you know, um, X number of years where our relationship has risen to a higher level. You know, we have a daughter now. You know, we've had a daughter for a, a while. And it's like, so that acknowledging what happened, I don't accept it, but I acknowledge it. And I've got to move forward, you know. But, I, I, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think that's a an astute comment. Um, so how can we reconcile the past, embrace the present, and redeem the future? Yeah, those are those are the three the three parts of my book. Um, and my 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 book is not a chronological. Um, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. I do a lot of bouncing back and forth because, uh -huh. like I said, it was twenty five years after her death. You know, so. Um, I talk about my daughter in, in the book. I talk about, you know, my life now, because that's, that's the future, you know, that's the present, you know, and then what's the future. Um, but there's, there's, there's elements of 
you know, the past in each one of the three chapters. You know, you've got to, um, like I said, you've got to reconcile the past. You've got, you've got to acknowledge that it happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this, 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 you got to come to some kind of, I don't want to use the word acceptance, but there is a little bit of that in there that, that it did happen. You know, you got to accept that it happened and acknowledge that it happened. You have to accept that it's how you wanted things to go. No, I don't accept that. Um, and then, like I said, embracing, looking around you, and th there's some, you know, th things about that, about being in the moment, being present, because we miss so, and I, I'm guilty of this as, as anybody, we miss so much of what's going on in our lives, the blessings, because we're so focused on what happened yesterday, what's going to happen tomorrow, we're not in the moment, you know, and the moment kind of, this is all we have is right now. I have this moment with you, us talking about this right now. It's like, I can't fix tomorrow. I can't change what happened yesterday. I've just got this moment to connect with you and hopefully connect with some of the viewers who, who may watch this. And that's a good thing. So, and then, um, you know, redeeming the future. Again, and this, a lot, all of this is intentional because I think about the future as asking some, yourself those hard questions. What do you really want? And what are you really willing to do to get it? Oh, I want the big house on the hill and I want the, you know, I want this and I want to be blah, blah, blah. It's like, but you're not willing to do anything to get it. And I'll, I was there for a lot of years. Like, yeah, I want to be happy. But what does that really mean? You know, what does that really mean? I want a good relationship with, with my spouse. But what does that really mean? And what are you willing to do to get there? So there, there's an element of intentionality and commitment in each one of those of, you know, reconciling the past. You can't change it. Embracing where you're currently at and, and acknowledging it. And then, you know, redeeming the future. Where do you want to go? Because time marches on. I mean, I I ignored that fact for a lot of years. Where all of a sudden I woke up one morning and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm 50 years old. I'm older than that now, but it's like, you know, I just hit 50. You know, and even this this last year, um, this this spring, you know, 1993, she's been dead for 30 years. She's been dead longer than she was alive. Yeah. And she's been dead longer than I was alive when she died, if that all makes sense. Uh -huh. And she's been dead long, more than half of my life, if that makes sense. I mean, I didn't know her my whole life, but, you know, 30 years is more than half my life. Uh -huh. so she's been dead, you know, more than half of my life. So that's what I know is her death, if you will. And so, but that doesn't need to be the overarching cover over everything it was it was a moment in time that it impacted me to this day that made me who like said made me who i am has you know given me strength has, has caused me to ponder has caused me to wonder has caused me to ask questions but that's not a bad thing you know that's part of life and so hopefully that kind of answered your your question a little bit as I, again rambled a little bit you get me started and i start rambling <laughs> you know <laughs> no it's all good because it's like it's and I, I actually appreciate the rambling better yeah. because it's not scripted. Yeah. It's what's <laughs> coming from the head, the heart, the, right. the being. Like it's, it's, exactly. It's yeah. what's yeah. important. I have no notes or anything. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I have very minimal notes, so it's all I good. I know. No, no worries. <laughs> um, amazing. Our time is almost up. Is there anything mm -hmm. else you'd like to add to our conversation today? You know, it's it's interesting to me because I, I know you and I we talked a little bit about this. You know, the, the the grief journey process experience, whatever you want to label it as, is is unique to each person. You know, um, we're all coming from different backgrounds, paradigms, our own experiences leading up to that moment leading up to an event that caused us grief and then, you know, how to traverse that. So it's individual and it's unique. And there's a lot of truth in the, the comment that you walk that journey alone, if you will, because it's, you know, it's a, a very personal thing. And it's contradictory in some ways to say, but you're not alone because we all experience it and we do, but it is, it is, it is kind of a lonely journey at times or can be. So, but that doesn't mean there aren't other people out there who've experienced similar things. And I've, some of my biggest connections are not with people 
who've lost a spouse at a young age, even though that's kind of what I focus on in my thing. It's like, I want to help people who've lost a spouse because that's the one thing I don't see out there. I see, you know, grief support groups for, you know, older widows, um, you know, in, um, people who've lost children, people who've lost um, uh, a sibling, people who've lost a job, people who've lost a friend. You know, there's a lot of support, but I don't see anything. It's like, where's for the young, and not just widows, but widowers, mm-hmm. but the guys, the young yeah. men in their 20s who've lost their spouse. I mean, yeah. I see a lot of groups for young widows. What about young widowers? I mean, I'm not a young widower anymore, um, but I lost my wife when I was 28 years old. We were just getting started on life. You know, we had all these dreams. Um, and I kind of lost my train of thought. So, you know, looking at that, it's like it is it is an individual journey, but it's also there's people that can come alongside you. Oh, I know what I was saying. Like some of the biggest connections I've had are not with people who've lost a spouse. It's with people who've had some other type of loss who I have not experienced. But them sharing their experience with me and me sharing my experience with them has made us connected um, like in ways I didn't realize were even possible. It's like, oh, wow, their experience was vastly different. You know, I, I can't even imagine losing a child. You know? And both my parents are still alive. You know, they're in their 80s. I have not lost a, a parent. You know, so I can't even, I don't know what that's going to be like. So, but some of the people, like I said, I've talked to who, have suffered those kinds of, of losses or experience, had those experiences, I've really connected with them, even yeah. though our walk was different. And so I say it's a lonely journey, but you're not alone. Because back to that original, my my comment at the beginning or that uh, quote, we're all going to love somebody that's going to die. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we're going to lo- experience love on a level. And then unfortunately, because we experience that love, we're going to lose that person at some time or some way, you know. So, and it's, it's, it's one day at a time sometimes. Yeah. And, and we, we, we push ourselves, we rush ourselves, you know, and you can get into the whole, you know, back to society and, you know, here's three days of bereavement leave. We'll see you on Thursday. You got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off, yeah. you know, take care of everything. We'll see you on Thursday morning at 8 a.m. It's like, really? Yes. <laughs> I know. Don't, don't get started on that. Right. The whole other exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. Oh, Mark, it's been so wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story with us and sharing welcome, uh, sharing from so many different perspectives and different mm-hmm. um like different ideas and insights on not only your own grief journey, but how we can help others yeah. navigate their um how we can navigate our own grief and also help mm-hmm. support and walk with others in right. theirs. Thank you. I so appreciate you having me. I appreciate the, the opportunity. So thank you very much. That's been amazing. Um, so if you want to learn more about Mark and his work, check out his book, Cowboys Are Not Supposed to Cry, and or reach out to him directly through social media and his website. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to for watching this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. As you know, this is a podcast where we share real-life experiences of converting grief into growth. I wanted to take some time to share my gratitude to everyone who has supported me along the way. Thank you to my guests who have shown up and allowed me to delve into their personal experiences of grief, growth, and transformation. I appreciate your courage, authenticity, and openness in sharing your stories. I have learned so much from each of you. Thank you to my editors and producers, the Pod2Go team and Chad Nedland, who have helped take a tremendous load off my shoulders and kept me going as a podcaster. Their support has allowed me to do what I do best, connecting with others and taking a deep exploratory dive into grief experiences showcasing not only how unique an individual grief is, but also how we can convert our grief into growth and goodness. And thank you to my listeners and audience. Our stories are meant to be shared, and without people like you to receive our stories, it can be tougher to express them. Most of all, I want to thank my amazing husband and kids for always supporting me and encouraging me in the work that I do. They have been incredible about keeping noise levels to a minimum while I'm recording. Not always an easy feat. And they are amazing listeners when I give them the lows and highs of my experiences, from individual episodes to the process as a whole. 
Because of some major changes in my personal life, I have been dedicating my time, attention, and resources to my home and family. As a result, starting in September, I will be taking a sabbatical from releasing new content for the Share Your Story podcast. In the interim, check out or revisit previously published episodes. Our grief changes with time, as do the circumstances of our lives. What may not have seemed pertinent before could jump out at you in a whole new way. A major component in converting grief into growth is to always be open to the lessons it has to teach you. Remember that all of our experiences make us who we are. They are perfectly tailored to help us become the best versions of ourselves and to help us reach our fullest potential. You can turn your grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters. So share your story 